Kia ora team and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast. My name's Noel Woloff and on today's episode I'm joined by Amelia Kerr. It's been a while in between drinks so I'm super stoked to kick off today's episode with Amelia. Not only do we get to speak about her cricket career, playing for the White Ferns and travelling all around the globe, showcasing her skills, but we also spent a lot of time talking about mental health in New Zealand, which is a pretty big topic and theme throughout the Beyond the Surface uh, podcast that I run here. In saying that, and in terms of a trigger warning, please note that this episode does talk about things such as mental health, depression and suicide. Thanks so much for all of the support on the podcast team, really appreciate everyone's feedback. If you do want to support the podcast, the best thing that you can do to help is make sure that you're following us on Spotify, rank us five stars and also tell a friend. Your support means the world, thanks heaps, welcome to episode number 19. Obviously, you are a cricket superstar in New Zealand. I think I remember hearing your name spoken on like Newstalk ZB when I was probably in year 13. They were like, Amelia Kerr, playing for Wellington, age of 14. And since then, you've got a pretty impressive resume. Um, I know as Kiwis, we don't really like talking about our achievements and stuff so much. But um, before we sort of go into your cricket career, do you mind just introducing yourself? Who is Amelia Kerr? Yeah, kia ora. my name's Amelia Kerr. Um, most people call me Mealy. Um, and yeah, I grew up in Tawa here in Wellington. Um, very close with my family and that's uh, been the most important thing to me growing up and they've probably taught me everything I know. I mean, I learn, you learn a lot of lessons throughout sport and I think with cricket it's a pretty fickle game and it's up and down, which can be a reflection on life um, and there's a lot of great lessons but I'd say I learned them from a pretty young age through my family and I've been very fortunate to grow up in a close-knit close knit family with a big extended whanau and yeah, um, loved sport growing up, family was sport and music and played heaps of sports growing up and then cricket was kind of the one that I chose and absolutely loved it, had a great support network around me and uh, yeah, fortunately played for Wellington at a young age and then New Zealand at a young age and um, yeah, I just feel very lucky that I get to do the job I love and live out my childhood dream. Mm, it's super cool, man. And with with cricket, I feel like a lot of, it, all New Zealanders, all Kiwis have like exposure to cricket through backyard, you know, games mm. with your family and stuff like that. I'm curious to to know, how did you find cricket as an avenue for you? And what was the moment where it really stuck? And you're like, holy holy crap, I'm actually kind of good at this thing. Yeah, so I started playing cricket when I was about six years old and would have some pretty good backyard battles. My uncle used to have this house and he mowed a pitch on his back lawn. There and you go, the backyard cricket. Yeah, eh? and we had this Christmas Eve battle, kids versus adults. There was an honours board on the shed. You just paint it up if you, you know whatever and it was always competitive but good fun and I played with boys growing up and yeah I I loved it and that was kind of what it was for me but it also had the family feel my my best mates I played with my cousins so Mm. yeah I just I just loved it but I remember vividly when I was about nine years old I was watching the White Ferns play on TV in a World Cup final and they lost to Australia on the last ball Sophie Devine hit it into Elise Perry's foot and if it hadn't have hit her foot, it would have gone for four and they would have won. Mm. And I remember that moment and I, like, wanted to cry after the game. It was like I was so invested wow. in this team and I watched that and I was just said to Dad, I want to be a white film one day. Wow. 
And then since that moment, I think one thing that was, I don't know why, and I think my parents, both of them are very hardworking, but I've always had this thought that if you want to get anywhere in life, you've got to work hard. So after I watched that game, I said to Dad, we're going to the nets every morning before school. So I was doing that from about 19 years old because I thought if I want to represent my country, I've got to work harder than anyone. Mm. And that was my mindset from a very young age. And yeah, and that, that's kind of how it started. And it's the whole you can't be what you can't see. So it's awesome yeah. now that women's sport's on TV. Yeah, yeah. And for you, going exactly to that point, because there was, there's no, there, there's no other Amelia Kerr prior to you, right? And the visibility of women's sport in New Zealand it's slowly getting a lot better. Um, you know, there's a lot more exposure now, but even thinking like five years ago, six years ago, you'd barely, like there was no super rugby for, for women mm. as well. And like to stumble across women's sport at all, apart from netball, was so rare on like any sports screens or even social media for clips and stuff like that. So what was, what was that moment like for you thinking, hey, I, w- I want to really give this a go as a career, even though you might not have had that visibility to see other women sort of living that pathway? Yeah, it was, um, I guess at that young age, I didn't really know what the career path was like for cricketers, but I knew you could represent your country. And mm. for me, I didn't care if it meant that it wasn't going to be my job. And I guess fortunately by the time I made the White Ferns, it slowly started becoming semi-professional um, and I was still at school. So it's not like I needed a job. I was living at home with mum and dad. Um, but yeah, to see where it's now, where it is now, when I made the White Ferns, our my debut game, it was on a live stream thing. Um, and now every game we play is on TV. So the growth there, it started off in New Zealand having, I think, four contracted players and now we've got 17 contracted Mm. white ferns that are pretty much full-time athletes so I think at a young age you're so naive and you just want to represent your country and then because I made it so young and I was at school I didn't need to think of Mm. work or a career option and I saw how the game was growing around the world and I hope that it'll get there to New Zealand yeah um but it's the people before me that have kind of you know paved the way and played Mm. for New Zealand having other jobs or not working to represent their country have kind of allowed us to do what we do today Mm. Wiff because you've been through throughout throughout the ranks been so talented and are so talented from such a young age how have you dealt with the pressure that you put on yourself and the pressure that other people also put on yourself to, one, I think be consistent, two, to perform, um, and three, with all of the spotlight and attention on you, um, you know, to also stay true to who, to who you are? How have you, how have you found all of that? Yeah, I love competing. I'm very competitive. So I think for me, when I go out on the field, it's I'm just in the battle and I want to compete and I want to do the best I can for the team. And I've got to, I think the older I've gotten, the more I understand that, you know, some things are out of your control and you can't perform every game, yeah. um, but that's part of it. I think for me with cricket, it's about being really level. So I never rid the highs and lows too much because one, at the end of the day, it's just a bat and a ball mm. and I'm doing what I love. So it wasn't for me, I mean, as dark as it sounds, it's not life or death, mm-hmm. and I'm doing what I love. 
Um, but there's definitely challenges along the way and because I'm so competitive also with myself, I want to be the best, I want to do this mm. and, and and whatever that, you know, sometimes I see failure um, when it's actually an, an all right day but I've kind of always had the mindset that from those times where I don't go as well, I'm learning from that experience and because of that it's going to help me mm. in the future. So I think my mindset with cricket has been and the mental side of the game has helped me, I mean, be where I am now and perform at a young age. Mm. And that was kind of fed through my family and being able to stay true to myself. It was a massive thing was just life balance. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'd go on tour with the White Ferns and then I'd come back to school and hang out with my mates like a normal teenager. Mm. That some most of them didn't really know anything about cricket. And I yeah. think that was so refreshing. Yeah, true. Um, and then my family, it was always be a good person first. Mm. And that was kind of the message. We don't care what you do. Like, yes, we're proud of you, but we don't care what you do as long as you're a good person mm. and you treat others well. So I think that's kind of been embedded in me from a young age and that probably helped, um, mm. I guess, when you're living a life that's probably a little bit different to what you think when you're 16 years old. Yeah, totally. That's super cool. How, how have you juggled with um the pressure throughout all of this because you've been really vocal with your own mental health journey along the way and it's been super cool and refreshing to see just somebody with such a massive profile in New Zealand again talking really openly about you know times where you are feeling quite shit you're feeling you know you're not feeling 100% and being vulnerable into that situation um where did your if we can kind of rewind where did your first where did your journey start with mental health and, you know, battling depression? When did that moment sort of start from you um, and how have you taken it to where you are today? Yeah, well, when I, I look back now and I think that when I was about nine, ten years old, I probably had really bad anxiety. Mm. And But you didn't know at the time. I didn't know and I talk to my parents about it now, about some of the thoughts I had and... They probably weren't normal for a kid that age. What were they, if you don't mind me asking? Well, one was, I'm sure actually they're thoughts that people have, but I had this massive fear of losing my parents mm. at, a, at a young age and I had a massive fear of, like, I had, I couldn't really sleep as a child. I didn't sleep. Um, <laughs> it was, parents' worst nightmare, yeah. right? <laughs> I just could not sleep um, with like almost like seeing things as like hallucinations oh, and and all of this stuff. I think there was around like stranger danger at school yeah, and it yeah. just got in my head about being kidnapped but also wanting, like I didn't want to ruin my parents' lives and mm. that, all no, these that, That's really things. deep and like I was not thinking about that at the age of nine or, nine or ten. Yeah, no, I think all I was thinking was I just want to be this. I just didn't want to cause any trouble for mm. my family and I didn't want to ruin their lives. Mm. And then there was an almost a separation anxiety, which I spoke to someone about, uh, like, probably last year. Because when I was two, three years old, my mum had breast cancer, mm. and I went into hospital every day with her. So I saw her when she was at her, I guess, most sick. Mm. And I think maybe some of the thoughts came from that. But, yeah, at a young age, I'd probably look back and think, ah, oh, those probably weren't normal thoughts. And then... On both sides of my family, I've seen my cousins, aunties, uh, uncles struggle with 
their own mental health. And then throughout school, there's quite a few suicides and around school and then people close to me who Mm -hmm. had others affected by it. And I found that really hard because it almost became something normal in my life and something that I kind of felt exposed to at about 14 years old. And then there were a few other, um, I guess, experiences that happened around those times that I found pretty tough. And then I was living this life and I felt like everyone wanted something from me. Um, I felt like I had to be a certain way for everyone. I was a perfectionist. So, you know, if I didn't do something the right way, I beat myself up about it. And then there were these past traumas that kept kind of coming back and affecting me. And cricket was my safe space. So I would go to sport to escape, to breathe, to for my mind to finally be clear. Mm. And that's where everything felt good. It felt like I had mental clarity because when I wasn't there, my head was spinning. Mm. And then broke my finger in 2021 and just spiralled downhill. But I'd say 2020 was, 2020 was when I first was diagnosed with mm. depression and anxiety and I started seeing a psychologist weekly. I uh, kind of got better. Mm. COVID made things pretty tough too. Yeah, and then 2021, I remember in 2020, I'd gone what I went through and I'd said, um, I'm so glad I went through what I went through because I learned so much about myself, but I hope I never feel that way again. Mm. And then in 2021, it just felt like my world came crashing down. Mm. Anything in, in particular when you've, like in 2021, where it got significantly worse for you? I think the main thing was I probably fully hadn't dealt with the things that had happened that were causing me to feel the way I did in 2020. But also in 2021, I broke my finger and it, that took away my safe space. It took True, away which is your sport. Yeah, yeah, it took away the one place where I felt like I could breathe. Yeah, and so for the rest of it, I just felt suffocated, and I had nothing, nowhere where I could go. Mm. Um, and it, it was my family that pulled me out of that place, mm. but I wanted to hide it from them so much. Mm. And looking through your video series, Treading Water, shout out to that video series because if you haven't seen it, make sure you go check it out. We'll put some links in the description wherever you're listening. Um, throughout this, you've profiled different people from sort of you know. Uh, young people to uh, sporting sort of superstars Duplessis um, is in that as well and uh, from what I was reviewing and watching those videos a massive theme across everyone's kind of story around mental health is this longing to not be a burden to anyone and that you know their issues will be a burden to their friends and their family I'm just wondering is, is that something which you also experienced when you were going through um, this episode around around mental health, was it that you didn't want to let other people down? Yes, I've always been massively empathetic and I know how much my family love me because of how close we are and the way I was feeling, I did not want them to know at all because mm. I thought if they know how I'm feeling, they're going to be broken yeah. and I don't want them to think they could have done anything more because... It's nothing to do with them. And so telling them just, I just wanted to hide everything from them. And mm. I I couldn't bear them really knowing, which I just didn't want to hurt them. Mm. But in fact, what hurt them more was not knowing. Totally. And they eventually could see it. But that's the scary thing with depression is 
you can hide stuff. People put on a brave face and it's invisible. And often when you can see it, it can be too late or it's at when people are at their crisis point or at their lowest. And that's kind of when my family found out, mm. which, you know, maybe if I'd been able to speak about it earlier, I might not have got to the place that I was in, but I was just too afraid to speak about it and tell the people I'm closest co- to, to because I didn't want to be a burden. It's crazy, eh? It's so crazy. And if you were to say to your family, you know, and it's, 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 it's the exact same thing, like for not telling them that's what makes them the most upset and actually hurts as well. Um, the only way, and oh, like, I, I've had my own sort of ups and downs with mental health, but I, the one thing I can do to relate to what you're saying is when I was 16, I got told I was going to become a father and I hid it from my family until my daughter was about three and a half months old. So I was like sneaking out of house to, um, you know, go visit her after school, going to the hospital when she was born and going to school the next day and not telling my family. And it was that exact same thing. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want the potential stereotype of what a teen dad looks like to let my family down, didn't want to stress them out. My mum was also pregnant with my baby brother. Mm. And it's looking back on it now, as I'm in a better space, I'm confident and proud to be a dad. Um, it's crazy that that was my thought pattern when, I'm, you know, the, the, the same as you, I've got a great relationship with my mum. I've got a great relationship with my dad and all my other family. I feel like I could literally tell them anything. But for that particular reason, and in that circumstance, I felt like, I, I just kept everything bottled up for so long and it doesn't do anyone any good, eh? No, I think I remember saying to my parents after it, sometimes it's hard to tell the people you love the most because you don't want to hurt them. Yeah. And that's where, for me, you know, see, make getting into a psychologist was so important because I am telling a stranger, but it is crazy how your brain is wired and yeah. how when you're in that state of mind you think that's what you should do mm. and you're trying to protect everyone else when actually you're probably the person that needs mm. help and needs to be protected at that time. Yeah. Um, and you flip flip the role. If your best mate, if your child's struggling, you want them to... Totally. Total, yeah, you want them to talk to you mm. and you'd say I'm, you're not being a burden. But, mm. you know, when you're in it and you're in your own head, it can be scary and you hold on to things and it, it builds up and that's when it reaches the breaking point. Mm. So how did you help to, obviously seeing a psychologist, but what were the steps that you took um, and maybe your family took to support you to help you get you through this tough time? I think I read somewhere you were at a White Ferns training camp and you actually got sent home. Um, they were like really sort of looking after your, your mental well-being. Um, so yeah, really keen just to hear how that whole sort of recovery journey and what that looked like for you. Yeah, the recovery journey was, it felt long, but... It, it was tough and it, it's still going today. Mm. Um, but I remember being in the worst place I'd ever been in. I wasn't sleeping. I'd kind of been surrounded by suicide so much and then it started crossing my mind mm. and I couldn't really cope with that. I didn't know how to. And the only person I spoke to was Maddie Green, who's in the White Ferns, but also, and also Leslie, who works for the Players Association. And I just... Promise Leslie, who lives in Christchurch, I'm going to get to Christchurch and then I'll be able to talk to you and I'm just going to get there. And then I remember getting on the plane from Wellington to Christchurch and sitting by the window and I just 
cried and cried on the plane because I was looking out the window and it was a beautiful night and mm. I just thought, this city is so beautiful and amazing. And something in my head just said, this is the last time I'm ever going to see this place. Mm, wow. And so I got to Christchurch that night and basically they were just, Maddie eventually stepped in and they were worried about my safety. And um, from that night on, I was basically being watched, mm. looked after. Uh, Maddie stayed with me that night. And then the next day, the psychologist at New Zealand Cricket stepped in. They sent me home. Maddie came back with me because um, I was thinking, okay, they want to send me home. I'm just going to run away. Like, was that, was that, that was my was mindset. Thought, thought I was like, oh, I don't want to go home because I was feeling all this pain mm. in Wellington. I just wanted to run away from everything. Mm. You thought Christchurch would be the sort I just, of... Yeah, it was just like it, yeah. getting away. And then obviously they put someone with me and then I went home and Maddie said, someone's got to be with you tonight. Who do you want it to be? And my sister was still in Wellington. So I said, she can come around. So she came around and then... Moments later, I saw my mum and dad walking in down the driveway and I could kind of tell they looked upset and had been crying. And then I, they came in and I was annoyed because I was like, I don't want anyone to see me like this. Mm. And then I started walking to my room just to, I was like, I need to breathe. This is so overwhelming. Uh, and then I saw my uncle and auntie walk in and I just freaked out, had this massive panic attack, wow. hyperventilating. My grandparents came and then I probably was about having this panic attack for 20, 30 minutes. What does it feel like to have a panic attack? I mean, they come in different forms, but it kind of felt like my whole body was paralysed in a way Mm. and you can't control anything, the breathing, the crying, the shaking, and that you're just completely out of control of your body. Mm. And as much as you want to try stop it, you work it up even more. Mm. And I've learnt now techniques to stop them or how much breathing helps. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you just feel out of control of your own, your own body. And then I sat in this room with my family and my dad, he read out a speech that my auntie and him had kind of put together just about how much they love me and how they're going to be here for me and that they're going to get the help and support I need Mm. and a message of love and hope that things are going to get better. And it was a two-minute speech that Dad took about ten minutes to read just from crying. That would be so hard, yeah. The only time I'd ever seen my dad cry before was at the end of his mum's speech at her funeral. Mm. And I just saw everyone in that room cried. Mm. And everyone spoke. Uh, There was a few powerful things as well that night. And my grandparents, who I'm very close with, said to me, we don't know how many years we have left, but if you're not here, we know we have no good years left. Mm. And then my sister, who I'm also, she's like my best friend, said that night, I remember when we were kids and we were growing up and we were so annoyed at mum and dad for not having more kids because we wanted what mum had with this big family so mm. our, like you know your kids can have lots of cousins yeah and then Jess just said you're all I have and I need I want my kids to grow up with your kids mm. and they're just 
It was so powerful. And I was in a horrible place, but everything that night that was said made me think I need to get better for my family because they need me. Mm. And then that, after that, Dad said, pack your bags, you're moving, you're coming home. And I thought just for the night, mm. he's like, no, you're moving home. So that was kind of, that night was just obviously mm. <laughs> very emotional, just... What an amazing family you have. It inc- I don't think that every family could do that, mm. but because of how close I am and what I saw, it was just like, for me, that became that that's my only option is getting better for my family because mm. they need me here. Mm. And then the next day, mum and dad took me to the crisis team at the hospital and I was there for eight hours. I spoke to the nurse and two psychiatrists and someone in the mental health team about everything I was feeling and going through and everyone in that room was in tears when I was speaking. Mm. And then, you know, they sent me home with mum and dad. I got into a psychiatrist as well so I could get on more medication. Yeah. Um, and then basically for the next six weeks I wasn't allowed to be by myself so wow. I didn't drive myself anywhere. I had to sleep next to someone. Really? Wow. Um, my sister's boyfriend took a week off work because um, my sister was going away and I still wanted to go out and do normal things. I, yeah. I still wanted to go to the gym because yeah. that was my happy place. So I kind of just had this first week where I was just really numb. But like I still went to the gym. I still did stuff, but I was just so out of it. And then it got to the point where... I hated that there was this control on my life. Mm. It was like everyone's watching me. I can't do anything for myself. Mm. And then I'd kind of get better and then feel sad again. I was like, I don't want to tell people I'm sad because I don't want control again. Yeah. So that was a real battle for a while, kind of dealing with that. And then we went into another lockdown. Yeah. And that was a blessing. A blessing, you think? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I felt like the world became so peaceful and Mm. everything stopped around me. We were in lockdown and I actually didn't have a bed the whole lockdown because we took in my flatmates, another friend, so there was about seven of us. How good, <laughs> living the dream. Yeah, yeah. and they're like the closest, some of the closest people to me and I just felt safe. Mm. And I think that was a real healing process for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think after that I got myself slowly into a better place and understood myself and seeing a psychologist, a psychiatrist every week. And then I got better and that's where the ideas from the videos came. Mm. And then now I want to do more. Mm. And why I want to do more is because, you know, you, you, look, you still live with it every day. You know, I've told my story and I feel in a way better place. Yeah. But I still get sad. There's still things that affect me. And it's, it doesn't just go away. Mm. You know, we all feel the highs and lows of life. Totally. So it's something I think, if we can normalise the conversation, mm. but also for people to know, you know, it's it, it can come back or, you know, it's something you've got to work on each mm. day. Mm. It's not like a linear journey, eh? There's so much mm. nuance to finding out how, uh, you know, how that little brain in our head um, functions and operates and what we can feed it to keep ourselves healthy and strong mm. and how to ride, ride the waves. With the title, Treading Water, it's... A beautiful, beautiful title. What's the inspiration and the, I guess, the message around treading water? 
Yeah, so I remember that not, that day I was at the hospital at the crisis team and I knew we were probably going to be there for a while. And I took like my laptop or a journal because I loved writing. I, I couldn't really speak my thoughts at first, but I could write them. Yeah. And I, because my family did what they did that night, I then wanted to write down and explain to them how I was feeling. Mm. So I wrote down everything that I, was, I had been feeling and what I was feeling and how I'm going to get better. And at the end of the, I guess, speech little thing, yeah. I said to them, um, I think mum said to me once, how are you feeling when I was going to bed? And she, I was just like, it's so hard to explain because I don't know if you'll understand. Mm. And then I kind of used it in a metaphor analogy and I just said something along the lines of I've been treading water mm. for so long trying to keep my head above surface level. I was drowning and I wanted to drown. And then you guys were the rescue boat and I'm so glad you pulled me up when I needed you the most and that now I'm back on land where I feel safe and I can breathe again. But that was for me how I felt. I was just constantly treading water, coming up for air and going back under and it was this vicious cycle and this horrible battle and I was in and I read that out to Hamish who filmed the treading water mm. and he said let's call it treading water. Mm, great name. So it's pretty powerful yeah. but also I think it's someone that if you've gone through mental health, well everyone has mental health but if you've gone through depression or mm. Anything like that, whether you've gone through it or not, you can visually see someone treading water and how if you did that for too long, that it gets too hard. Yeah, it's exhausting, eh? Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Far out. What a story and what a family you have that's, um, that's incredible. I'm sure those moments within, and I don't know if the, an intervention is the right word to call it, but when you had that family meeting... I'm sure those are those are moments and messages that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it's probably the most powerful thing that's ever happened in my life, and mm. things from that night will stay with me forever. Um, and I think, on a whole, with what happened that night, and then what my family's also been through stuff, but also from that, how close our family has become. Mm, true. And I think through that pain, and I think through vulnerability, it's it shows strength and it's just, I think it's just brought our family a whole lot closer together and more aware of things. You know, mm. I had my cousin Eli who was on the first series of Treading Water. Shout out Eli. Yeah, he's the man. And he um, struggled from like about eight years old wow. with depression and anxiety and it was almost like we didn't really talk about it as a whole family, like yeah. with all the cousins and it's because that's, what the world was like back then. It wasn't something you talked about. Yeah. And it wasn't, I don't know, I think with, in Dan Phoey's interview, he spoke about mental health and depression being like a cancer. Mm. And that, you know, if you speak about it, you can catch it early. Mm. You know, if you find cancer, the cancer early, you've got a better chance of surviving. And it's yeah. the same thing. And I think the other thing is the response people give to someone with depression and anxiety you don't know how to respond sometimes no. but no one chooses to have it it's cruel and 
it's an illness, and I think it's realizing that you yeah. know when someone has cancer, you sympathize and you're there mm. and you're around them. But we just sometimes we haven't been taught what to do. Yeah, and you're scared of saying the wrong thing. Yeah, and you don't know how to be. And I, the best thing is just being there. Yeah, you don't need to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Just let them know you're there. Yeah, it's a crazy space, eh? And I remember, I remember growing up. My mum had this photo of this friend of hers, and um, it was like a photo of like a young guy, must have been I don't know, eighteen or early twenties, and he was smiling. I remember it was on our fridge. I remember asking, I was like, who, who is this? Who is this person, mum? And she was like, oh, it's, she'd tell this sort of story, and then she's always said like, oh tell you a bit more about it when when you get older and I got a bit older and I asked her again and she told me that that person had um, taken his own life and I was like shit that's crazy and the older I got I realized my dad had also experienced friends who had you know committed mm-hmm. commit took took their own life don't really like the term committing suicide but um yeah and I, I always remembered those stories from my parents and then I never thought that would happen to me and my friend group and then in year 13, a really close friend of mine, he took his own life as well. And he was living up in Topor at the time. And it's, you know, it's such a crazy sickness and a crazy disease that essentially plays tricks on your mind and your body. Um, it's, so, it's so crazy. And it's just, the, the point I'm trying to make is just how fucking sideways it is how common it is for people our age Mm. you know to have these feelings or to know of people that have actually gone through with the whole thing like it's such a a, i don't know if we're alone in new zealand with this Mm. sort of epidemic for young people with 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 depression and stuff but it just seems like it keeps on keeps on happening eh? it's 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 so crazy but i think the, the amazing work that that you're doing with treading water, the more exposure, the more we can have conversations like this, um, which will be in people's, you know, ears if they're commuting or whatever, you know, the more we talk about it, the more we make sure that these thoughts, um, every everybody can have them. But as long as we can help people understand what they can do to support others feeling in that way, I think will be a better place. So. Agree. And I think this, you just feel so alone throughout it all. Yeah. And so if we can talk about it and how others know they're, they're not, it's that's why also I partnered with I Am Hope mm. because of what they stand for, the counselling with through Gumboot Friday. Super cool, man. Because we do live in a broken system yeah. and we're the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. We're a reactive... I guess we're reactive with everything. Like when we're injured, we go to the physio. When we're in a bad place, we go see a psychologist. We don't keep on top of things. It's when it, we're at our worst, we yeah. get same so yeah the system makes it hard and that's why I think what Mike King and everyone's doing at I'm Hope is amazing for people under 25 to have free counselling and should just be like just so accepted and like actually funded eh, that you know you can have access to this sort of counselling as a young person yeah it is crazy it should be open open for absolutely everybody as well um also just think for the government that would be such a such an easy win. Like mm-hmm. nobody would disagree with, you know, X party saying, yeah. Hey, we're gonna make free counselling for all people under twenty five. No one's gonna be like, That's a ridiculous yeah, that's waste stupid. of money. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's such a such a good idea. Um 
what, what has your relationship been with uh, Mike King and I Am Hope? Well, I kind of I got in touch with a psychologist through the Cricket Players Association about my idea and wanted to get in touch with Mike King and they passed on the contact details so I gave him a ring and told him my idea and told him why I wanted to do a range of different people um, and he thought it was awesome. Cool. And so he was fully behind it and he was just, let me know what you need. And I said, I kind of know what, I can see the vision and I know a guy that um, has done video stuff for cricket before mm-hmm. and he's amazing. Mm-hmm. So got in touch with Hamish and I basically said my idea to him and he was like, yeah, I can see it. Cool. And I think that's also what makes the series so good is the how visu- visually, mm. I mean, you go through, it is, yeah, yeah, you go, th- it's a real storytelling process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like everyone has a story. So from that, Mike just kind of kept in touch throughout it all. And then um, I think it went pretty well, the series. I mean, you never know quite, but I've had some amazing messages from people or other mm. complete strangers. I, there was one um, lady that I was out at a restaurant in Wellington and this mum came up to me crying and wanted to give me a hug and just said, thank you so much for your series. It's helped me and my son who's struggling so much. Mm. And for me, that was just so powerful because I was like, that's why I did it. Yeah. You know, it was hard at times for me. Yeah. But it was like, that's why. That's my why. Yeah. And then... Yeah, and then Mike has recently been in touch again and said, um, let me know when you're ready for Series 2. Cool. So I'm in the process of that. It will be smaller, um, but, yeah, in the process of that, less people. Okay, yeah. But it's exciting, and we're hoping to get some, you know, pretty inspiring people Mm. on it also. So it's definitely something I would love to work in this space and do more in this space because... I think one, it's so important. Everyone, everyone has mental health, and the more we can talk about it, the mm. more we're going to help others. Mm, that's so nice. I, what, what I do like about the episodes is there's a really good mix of you know the superstars, Hurricanes players, basketball players, um, but also just the ordinary New Zealander, the ordinary mm. Kiwi who doesn't really have that platform and stuff as well. I, I don't know if it's like a and ask, but it'd be really cool if you did, like, you know, keep including that. Because when I was watching it, I was like, man, it also normalizes it that it's not always people in the limelight that have these these feelings. It's you know, every ordinary person, mm-hmm. whether you're students, you know, studying or doing whatever, working a nine to five in retail, um, it's super normalized there. Yeah, that's where the idea came from for me, mm-hmm. and it's probably because I had seen friends and family members struggle and I thought, okay, I've seen more people speak about mental health in the media, but it's, you know, high profile people. Mm, Exactly. And so I was like, I want so many different people from all walks of life. Grassroots, eh? Yeah, I want everything because if there's more stories for others to relate to, then I'm going to help more people. Totally. And the more people I can help, the better. So that's why I wanted to do a range of those different people we had, eight, the seven in, and including me, where everyone's story, there were similarities, but everyone's story was so different and unique to them and it just shows that every person's experience is different. Mm. And I think that's why the first series was extremely powerful. Mm, 
What would you say to people listening that might have a friend that's, you know, suffering with depression, um, anxiety? What would you say to them? Not saying that, you know, you've got the silver bullet solution or, or anything, but from what you've learned through your experience, how would you, um, what would your advice be to them to help support their loved ones going through tough times? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a trained psychologist or anything, but I've had lived experience and have had things that had helped me. I think, one, if you know a person's struggling, you've got to be patient with them. And, you know, you might want the information out of them straight away, but you've got to wait till they're ready. Mm. But it's just trying to be as clued in as you can as well. But you've got to be patient and just let them know that you're there for them no matter what. Let them know how much you love them because it's scary when you're in that lonely, dark place how you forget how you forget that. Mm. Um, I think the most important thing is just being there for them. Encourage them to seek help. I think, you know, there's just having someone that is there for you no matter what. Mm. Um, that's what I had. Mm. And before it was my family, it was Maddie. Mm. I knew I could call her at any time, day or night. And, yeah, it's just someone being there for you. Mm. If, if they're ready to talk, listen. And if they're not, just be there in silence. Yeah, 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 yeah. With your schedule at the moment and your travel, you're just saying you're off to Bangladesh soon and you're off to, to the UK. How do you stay on top of the practical side of things when it comes to looking after your own well-being? Because I'm sure... With your schedule, your profile, it must just be like, okay, cool, Melia, we've got this thing over here, here, okay, next Wednesday you've got training. You know, it would just be so hectic for you 24-7. How do you personally, what steps do you take to make sure that you are keeping up with looking after yourself? Yeah, it's been a pretty full-on few months recently and sometimes I forget to almost look after myself in a way and do the things that I know fill my cup. Mm. I'm lucky that I love training and that going to the gym and running is part of my training. But I'd do that anyway for my mental health. Um, So that always helps me feel better, I think. Um, For me also, like, things I got into after my mental health was photography. I Not that I got into it and wanted to be a photographer but I enjoyed going out listening to music and taking photos in nature I love being outside I love swimming in the ocean it's a bit cold at the moment but freezing (laughs) um for me being in nature was really important I loved reading I love reading Mm. um journaling and Mm. I think gratitude you know it if you tell someone to do gratitude they're kind of like it won't really help like but actually I did it every day for a long time and it helped a lot, mm. and it's probably something I should keep doing. I don't do it all the time now, but I should. Mm. Good um, reminder. Yeah, it is yeah. a good reminder. Um, and then just connecting with family and friends. And uh, for me, those are kind of things that I do to look after myself. I um, have started seeing a psychologist again. I had a really good relationship with mine, but she moved to the UK. And um, and then I found myself struggling a little bit again recently and mm kind of avoided it and went back to that old habit of... Keep your head down, keep busy. Yeah, keep yeah. keep busy, don't tell anyone, it, you'll be fine. Um, and then I was like, okay, I actually do need help. So I think through that I've just identified my cues a little bit earlier when I'm going into a bad place mm. and 
I think recently it was actually a good reminder for me to keep on top of things even when I'm in a good place because mm. um, I'm still going to have ups and downs. Yeah. It's part of my makeup and yeah. what's happened. But, yeah, I think being out in nature has been a real key for me and just being grateful for each moment that I'm in. Mm, that's really nice. Yeah, it's such a such a roller coaster, eh? Um, and awesome now that you've gone through that, you know, those really tough times, and you understand probably yourself a bit more, and you 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 know what those triggers are and how to deal with them. So that's um that, that's super cool. Um, you're recently over in India as well for the first women's Premier League uh, like competition over there. You came back. As the winner, you got you guys were the champion, which is pretty awesome. But just really keen to hear from you, what is it like to play cricket over in India in front of like fifty thousand screaming fans? Like, what's that? What's what is what is that like from playing? You know, in New Zealand with probably smaller crowds, less exposure to going overseas, and it's just basically like a religion over there, isn't it? Yeah, I'd been to India once before for cricket, which were some exhibition matches for the hope of a WPL happening. Yeah. I was there for 10 days and I loved it. And then, yeah, went back this year and I think it was one of the best months of my life. It was incredible. Crazy. And it's probably every cricketer's dream. And, yeah, they're just fanatic over there. You know, we're staying at the hotel and walk out for training or for a game and the, all the hotel staff and what they're out there waving their flags. And, wow. you know, you're playing in bigger crowds, which is which is awesome because that's what you saw growing up in the men's game. Yeah. Uh, you saw I watched the IPL growing up and, you know, and and saw that. And then, yeah, you're fielding on the boundary and you walk back and people are screaming your name. What's, and that, what's that like? What's that, what's that feeling like? I mean, you kind of – it's like you're in the moment when you're playing, but it's the moments between balls where you kind of notice that. Mm. And it's just – like what you see is what you get in India. It's just crazy how much they love it. You know, you give them a wave and there's a huge cheer. That's awesome. And it's like that doesn't happen in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're too yeah. busy just drinking beers and like yeah, the basin or something. And chilling, right? and we're yeah. just so laid back here. Yeah. It's, which is nice. Like it's nice coming home and you're just in this like calm, mm. peaceful place. But yeah, it's an amazing experience. You, the cricket was amazing, and to win it. You know, you get looked after very well and um, it's amazing just for women's cricket. It's also life-changing too totally. and it's going to inspire so many yeah. young kids, I think, to play to play cricket and to see that as a career path as well, like what we were talking about earlier. So, yeah, but to play in front of that many people is also living out a childhood dream and 100%. then, yeah, to win the whole thing um, is pretty special and it's the first one too and I guess no one can ever take that away. Mm, 100%. So what was the biggest crowd that you played in front of? Was it like 50,000 odd? Well, the final was sold out, which was at a stadium which held 50,000, but the opening match in another game we had, which was I think a top of the table clash, yep. we played at a bigger stadium, which seated about 80,000. No way. Um, and I think there was about 70,000 there. So that's, that's crazy. That's yeah. like an All Blacks game, you know? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's just, they just love cricket. It's amazing, a country like that, how much they love cricket. Yeah. I turned up to training and I could just turn up to a net on the grass and you'd have people just wanting to bowl at you all day, you know? Like if I went to Ngāti Toa Domain there 
and pad it up, there wouldn't be anyone lining up to bowl. Yeah, but yeah, you go yeah. to India, I could bat all day and people just come and bowl. It's just, it is a religion over there for them. That's amazing. What was like your standard, your standard week, let's say Monday to Friday, while you were training and competing over in India? Yeah, well, when, when I first got there, there was so much media. And I was like, I've done more media than cricket. And I was like, <laughs> I just want to go play or train. Yeah. I actually got COVID when I first got there. So I had a day isolating. And then I actually played the first game, I think, with COVID. Um, True. And we ended up probably playing three games a week. So it got quite busy. It's an intense schedule, yeah. Yeah, so kind of play a game. And they were all night games. So yeah. we'd get back at about... 2am Far out And then you'd sleep till about 10, 30, 11 Wake up, have breakfast uh, We found a good local cafe actually um, That did proper coffee about say, Is in the India. coffee all good over there? Well, it, we found a good spot um, That had good coffee But they only did full fat and I'm dairy free Oh no So I just took one for the guts and, so, Oh yeah. so, so you still you didn't do like long black or anything? No, nah, I just yeah. went for it took which one was, for the guts Yeah, bad mistake But <laughs> a few of us ended up signing, signing the wall at this cafe And we oh, gave yeah. them a, f- a few shirts So we'd do that and then we'd review the game As a team and whatnot um, We had two masseuses with us the whole time So probably had the most massages I've ever had So oh, my good. body wasn't ever sore Yeah um, so the day after the game was always very chill And then the next day We'd either be playing Or would have a training session yep. There wasn't much around us We are staying about an hour out of Mumbai So um, yeah, But we had like a team room set up With a table, tennis table Sweet. Pool table They put on dinners for us um, At the thing My dad came over as well um, So you kind of kept busy um, because you were playing so much and they were late nights and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, otherwise it was just normal training, gym, because you just want to keep up with your gym and running yeah. and and then recovering and a lot of meetings. Yeah, true that. Man, that's wild, eh? How, um, so how many times would you train a week when you got um, games and stuff going yeah, on? Yeah, well, a few were optional trainings. Um, and if we were playing three games a week, there might have only been two trainings. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and... I think in a tournament like that, especially because at the end of a big summer for a lot of people, it was more about just mentally preparing for the games mm. and keeping your body fresh. Whereas, mm. you know, at the moment, there's no games till I head overseas soon and you're training every day. Mm. Um, because it doesn't matter if your body's a little bit sore, we've got, we've got no games at the moment. So it kind of changes your schedule depending on a tournament, if you're at home or how many games you have a week. Um, but it, it was an awesome learning experience and to, so cool. yeah, play with other people around the world, work with different coaches. It's just, mm. it's not only the cricket, it's the friendships, um, it's the meeting new people and how other people go about their business. I think you can learn so much from those uh, experiences. Mm, totally. Um, before the podcast as well, me and Ashton were having a talk and there's a whole bunch of White Ferns players that have came from Tower. How yep. how many are currently in the squad? There is, what is there? There's four um, contracted. Yeah. Yeah, four contracted white ferns, and we've had um, in the last year five from Tower College represent New Zealand. That's wild. What do you, why what is causing this phenomenon? Like, <laughs> no, send your kids to Tower College. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we shout out. Um, yeah, it's well, 
I I don't know, but um, Sophie Devine obviously went to Tower College, yeah. and so um, she's she's a bit older than the rest of us. She won't like me saying, but um, and then there's myself and my sister Jess and mm. Georgia Plummer and Rebecca Burns who have all made the white ferns. Um, but I think we. I remember when we were at school, we played in like the cricket for intermediate and then college. My dad helped out with some of the teams and we just got, there was a group that just enjoyed playing cricket together. We were obviously successful, which also helps, mm. you know, when you're winning games. Mm. But there was just this group and a good training opportunity. We often made nationals. And then I remember one year at under 21s, for Wellington, there was about nine girls in, from Tawa in the Wellington team. Crazy. So I don't know what it was. We may, maybe had a good system and um, I guess when you had people doing well in cricket, more people wanted to be a part of that and be mm. a part of that team. And, True. Get a bit of FOMO. Yeah, and then from there, um, I guess people kept going and it's pretty cool to see uh, that that's happened, especially for a place like Tawa. You know, you normally hear about... Uh, people from schools in town or the private schools totally. that have athletes or people. But when it's out of a co-ed school in Tower, it's yeah. um, pretty cool to see people people doing that because often people think you've got to go to, you know, single sex yeah. or private schools to get those opportunities. 100%. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty mind-boggling. Like what a crazy cool niche that is that Tower College has produced so many great cr- cricket athletes. It hurts me to say it as a former old college pupil, but um, yeah, send your, send your daughters over to Tama College if you want them to be a cricket superstar. Yeah, something yeah. in the water. Yeah, there must be, eh? That's super cool, man. Um, well, yeah, what's your next sort of schedule looking like until now to the end of the year? What have you got going on for you? Yeah, it's surprisingly, it kind of just creeps up on you and it, like the year goes quickly now. It's crazy, eh? We're yeah. always, already halfway June. through. Yeah, it's um, But yeah, I head to Sri Lanka next week. Um, that's for about three weeks. Yep. We play there. We have six games, and then I'll come home for a little bit, go to the UK, and I play for the London Spirit in the 100 ball. That's for all of August, and then come home again for maybe a week or so, and then the White Ferns head to South Africa. It's not 100% confirmed, but it's very likely to happen. Um, so that will be cool because we're in cool. South Africa this year, actually. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, Is it like one of your favourite places to travel to? Cape Town, yeah, yeah. epic. Cool, like, man. Beautiful, beautiful. And then after South Africa is the women's big bash in Australia, where in previous years I've played for the Brisbane Heat. So there's a draft coming up for that mm. and I'll be working out if that works out in the schedule. And then from after that we'll be in our home summer, so... Um, Pakistan will play us at home and then I'll play for Wellington and then I think the WPL is happening in February Cool. and then come home and England are playing us at home. So I feel like the next (laughs) six months are going to go pretty quick with how busy and how much cricket there is. That is actually insane. I wish I had my like, I don't know, schedule with work that laid out. That just sounds so exciting, eh? Yeah, it is Super exciting. Cool. And you Did, get to go to good places. Yeah, and man. Yeah, we've got a good culture in our teams too. And having Jess there, my sister, it's, um, it's pretty fun. Are there times you have to really pinch yourself? You're like, this is the life that I'm living. I get to do this for a job. Yeah, I think it's like, it definitely is. I think some people, like you're out training all day and 
I know sometimes I think people think you don't have a job, mm. and it's like I'm actually busy today. I'm yeah. at, at my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't feel like a job, or it's a job I I love. Yeah. And I think that's also the thing I want to I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, yeah. when it's not cricket, I want to do a job that I love. Mm. And so yeah, I feel very fortunate, especially when I think. I more pinch myself when I think back to that nine-year-old girl yeah. watching the white fern saying she wanted to be one. Super cool. Definitely I, made her proud, eh? Yeah. So I think when I look back to that, you know, I look back to me in the nets with dad before school, pretending to bat with Susie Bates, and now I actually am batting with her. I'm like, that's cool when Crazy. I look back on those on those moments. Yeah, that is unreal. You probably get this question a lot as well, but what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't playing cricket? It's a great question. Um, I think I would love to do things like what I'm doing with I Am Hope mm. and in the mental health space. I used to always say te- I'd be a teacher because all my family are teachers, but definitely not now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why is that? Why? why I um, I did teacher aiding for a bit. Yeah. And I just and my sister was a teacher when I was teacher aiding. And man, it's a tough job. It's yeah, hard so, worker, eh? Yeah, especially big days, <laughs> massive days, kind of average pay conditions as well. Yeah, and you got to deal with annoying kids who aren't your own kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I love what I think. Whatever I want to do is to do with helping people. Yeah, nice. Um, and trying to set up opportunities for kids to have a better life or mm. to be able to do what they want to do and something in the mental health space. So. Mm. Um, but my dream job would be to be a musician. It's just unfortunate that I don't have musical talent. Oh, true. How good? Like, what um, do you play any instruments? Uh, I, I learned the guitar, like, basic. Yeah. I take that on tour with me. Yeah. And that's also another good thing, I think, for my mental health, because it's just, like, peace of mind and you're focusing just on that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, my aunties and uncles are, like, good singers and can play whatever, they read music or they can just hear something and play it. I always get so jealous of them. Yeah. Um, I know, right? Especially, I've got heaps of friends. Um, one friend in particular who's just like an amazing singer. I'm like, man. And he, he works obviously incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're just born with like an amazing voice. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be like a really good singer, eh? Yeah, it'd be, be that would be one of my one selfish wishes. 100%, 100%. Hey, well, um, just... Uh, finish up with some sort of quick fire ish questions. Um, they're nothing too 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 tricky, but they are quite deep. So, um, <laughs> what brings you true happiness? Uh, I think nature and my family. Nice advice you wish you knew about when you were younger. I think it's okay to show that you're sad. Mm. What does legacy mean to you? Uh, legacy means to me, I guess, leaving the place that you're in in a better place than what you found it, um, leaving a better impact on the people you've touched when you leave. Love it. If you could change one thing in New Zealand, what would this be? It's a good question. <laughs> um, I think from the topics we spoke about today, it would definitely be to do with the mental health system here. What do you believe is the main thing that is holding back young people in New Zealand? I think, one, we're scared to fail and the criticism you get for being yourself sometimes. Mm, love it. Um, 
we'll end on a quote but before that where can people get in touch with you and your mahi um, you can one follow me on Instagram which is Mealy Kerr and then from there you can go to my website which is outofthereough.nz and that will have all the full treading water videos on there cool. and then the shorts the short ones are on my Instagram page epic man we'll put links in the description as well and we'll end with a quote this one is from Conor McGregor and it says there's no talent here this is hard work this is an obsession talent does not exist we're all equals as human beings you could be anyone if you put in the time you will reach the top and that's that I am not talented I am obsessed cheers Amelia thank you thank you <laughs>